My name is Dario Hasenstab. I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Walter Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we will analyze how to understand historical awareness and accountability through the lens of the Western bubble. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. As usual, starting with our housekeeping, next week will be our last episode of this year, and it will be the Western Bubble Awards episode, where we will be handing out the bubbles to politicians or journalists or any specific articles um, that we believe represent the Western Bubble in a particular way. And if you, as our listeners, have any suggestions for any categories or for any leaders, journalists or articles, please feel free to submit them to thewesternbubble at gmail.com. And with this, moving on to... What is the question of the week? A listener sent us an email about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals this week and said they've seemed to be trendy in current liberal circles. I've even had a whole course on them at university and seen professors voicing their support for them as well as wearing SDG lapel pins. Um, yet, I've always been skeptical about their real objectives and see them more as a ploy to justify more government intervention. Balder, what do we think about uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals? Well, they are what they are. In many ways, they are a little bit like human rights, right? They are they are broad goals set by the UN, and the UN is what it is. And with that, I mean is that you can't have too high an expectation of things coming from the UN because in the end, it's the 193 countries in the world coming together and basically deciding on the lowest common denominator of what we want to achieve. And UN Sustainable Development Goals, which talk about poverty reduction and all those kinds of and environmental uh, protection. Those are uh, education for children. The, those are in itself good, broad, general goals. Uh, they are not very specific in the way they're formulated and they are not an amazing contribution to society, but they help maybe a little bit. More than anything, I think you should interpret them as a clarion call, right? So when the SDGs get updated, then a lot of institutions in the world use that as a way to shape their own policy making. So they be they're inspired by the SDGs in order to then actually get into specifics. What surprises me a little bit uh, from this. Um, email is that actual professors wear lapel pins or and and actively support sdgs that is when i get a little bit nervous because they are not a enormous source of moral behavior they are simply an institutional broad objective for us to follow and we should be very careful in overly celebrating them i mean in general when it comes to the sdgs um i tend to be not as critical as maybe um, our listener here because at least they are not proclaiming the ways to achieve them i mean they are as you said very broad goals which is also a bit because of the institutional aspect here that you know if all 90, 193 countries have to agree to them you can't put everything in there it has to be very vague but overall i don't think it's a bad thing that the world is striving towards you know reducing poverty, reducing gender inequalities, uh, protecting the environment, keeping the oceans clean. 
as long as it's not telling people and countries how exactly to do it. I am a little bit concerned about it once it is over-celebrated, you know, and then implemented, actively implemented into foreign policy. And then with this, maybe even morally putting yourself above others, saying that we follow the UN social development goals, um, sustainable development, development goals, and therefore our goals in foreign policy are more righteous than yours. Well, that I wholeheartedly agree with. And um, it does concern me why, why I pointed out the Le Pelpin thing. It concerns me when a university make, associates itself too much with this, because in the end, this is politics, right? SDGs are politics. It is the global society making certain decisions. And politics is not always bad. Some good things come out of politics, obviously. Um, like you, I've got nothing against SDGs as such, but I've got something against a university endorsing SDGs because that's what a, not what a university is supposed to do. A university is supposed to analyze, to research, to objectively or neutrally teach rather than identifying with a political movement. And the other concern is exactly what you've just said, the idea of SDGs potentially being part of the Western bubble, right? They are just like human rights. People should listen to our episode on that if they haven't done so already. Um, they can be a weapon for the West to basically impose its will because it is so broadly framed. The, the West can say, look, we have this universal morality, um, this, these universal objectives as framed within the SDGs. We are going to work on achieving them in your country. And if you are against that, then you go against global morality rather than acknowledging this, that the SDGs are a political project. And, and as a result, they can be used for good and they can be used for, I don't want to say evil, but less than good, um, depending on the specific situation. So they might be a, um, a way of reinforcing the bubble, which is something that we should be very concerned about when that happens. One more point on the universities. If anything, the universities should be at the forefront of criticizing them. Um, Absolutely. For, for not being specific enough. That's exactly right. So it's not up to a university, regardless of what you think of the, the actual content of SDGs and all that. You're absolutely right. It is not the job of a university to be part of a political movement. And the United Nations and SDGs are a political movement. They are a global community making political decisions. And, that, and, and universities need to understand what their value is. And their value is analysis, research and critical thinking. And I think with this, we've said um, what we wanted to say on the United Nations SDGs. And I think with this, we can move on to the next category or the first category of today's episode. And what are the facts? Apologies and reparation efforts from Western governments for past foreign policy mistakes have increased in the 21st century. Continuous debates simmer about European colonial pasts and other sensitive historical periods with media and politics struggling to find the right tone. Generally, Western populations still view their own past as inherently righteous, albeit recognizing occasional mistakes. According to a recent poll, the Dutch and the British are the most proud of their former empire, with 44% of British considering their colonial past as a source of pride. More than a quarter of Britons would like to see the empire back. Of the major colonial powers, German and Spanish populations are the least proud of their colonial history. The German case is in many ways an outlier because of the events during World War II, after which West Germany went through a profound process of self-reflection in order to both understand how the Holocaust happened 
as well as to avoid such behavior in the future. Moving on to the next category. What is the bubble? So before we really talk about what the bubble is, I think it is important to point out that this will not be a rant about Europeans and the history, because there are other people doing that, and I think there is enough people doing that already, but that this is going to be a wake-up call about how to deal you know, with your history and your past. This is not about collective memory necessarily or historic awareness, but really just about being aware of your own history and what that means. That's that's exactly what we should strive for. Um, I, our listeners know that we're critical enough of the West already, um, and there's a lot to criticize about our past. But it's mostly about puncturing through the bubble that every society, Western or else, elsewhere, has about their own past, the, the way we identify with who we are based on past actions, and how that can warp are thinking about ourselves in the present and the future, right? So the, the, the idea is that if you only partially understand your history, partially know the facts and partially emphasize, for example, only the good things about your history, the mythology around your, uh, around your history, then you will be less equipped to effectively and productively, constructively implement foreign policy as well as domestic policy now and in the future. And when it comes to then analyzing what the bubble is, uh, we're going to be looking at a selection of countries. Please note that we're not will be looking at all European countries and all former um, colonial powers. Uh, we will mostly be focusing on the German experience, uh, on the Dutch experience, on the British perspective and the Spanish perspective, uh, because especially the first two ones are the ones we, we personally know the most about. And the latter two cases, uh, we've simply read uh, read more about than, for example, the French, the Portuguese, or the Italian histories. Yes, it's. Uh, I would very much encourage any listener, if they are particularly knowledgeable on some of those other countries, to write in and give us information if what we're saying about the countries of our, our choice, um, if that also applies to a country like France or Italy and what um, their experiences are in this respect. Or if it doesn't apply. I mean, we're, we're happy to be told that we're wrong. Um, and so starting with the uh, with the German perspective, um, and uh, I mean, the, the obvious uh, case to look at here is how Germany deals with uh, World War II. And here I think it is important to mention, as, as, as I already said in the fact sheet, that the West Western German experience is different from the Eastern German experience. So, well, in, in East Germany, it was the, the Russian uh, occupiers who went through a process of anti-fascism and democratization with the population for about four or five years and then declared, you know, the roots of Nazi thinking to be eradicated from, from East German thinking. Um, that is that perspective. I personally grew up in West Germany and I have that perspective, which is a lot more about Vergangenheitsbewältigung and Erinnerungskultur. So, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, meaning dealing with your own past, and Erinnerungskultur is a culture of remembrance. And so these are the, the this is the perspective I can personally talk about. And for now, I will specifically be talking about the case of World War II because there's a variety of other cases in German history that are not sufficiently covered. Um, but especially that part about joking, you know, joking about your history or someone else's history. Uh, so having gone to an international university and growing up in an international environment, there were always, you know, quick jokes from, from people from other cultures about, oh, Nazi Germany and German past. And this is something, and maybe our listeners have experienced this as well, in case you've ever encountered a German. We happen to run around everywhere in the world uh, for, for a variety of reasons. That as soon as you talk about this, they change. 
um, the tone, the face, and their entire behavior about that conversation changes because it is such a serious thing for us. Um, I just had this uh, a few days ago, you know, it was the last session of a class and we were talking about this and we were somehow making, uh, yeah, we're making jokes, you know, about how different cultures uh, see food. And at some point, uh, someone from Italy made a, a bit of a reference uh, towards Nazi Germany. And the majority of the class was laughing, except the three Germans in there, um, including the professor, very quickly, very quiet, um, not what, reacting to this. What, what is your reaction in such a case? Is it, is, it, is it one of anger or discomfort or annoyance? What, what, what is the emotional state when someone does that? Um, for me, it's mostly a bit of discomfort. Um, depending on depending on what you know, on, on which direction does the does the joke go? I mean, if it's something like, you know, if there there are these these terrible jokes, uh, you know, about invading Poland or invading uh, France, um, you know, Germany invading other countries, that is a little a little bit less, yeah, you know, sensitive. But as soon as it moves towards the Holocaust and Jews, uh, definitely discomfort about jokes. And then, but but knowing, okay, these are other cultures you keep this for yourself and you basically do not get involved in this conversation. I don't think most Germans have the reflex of then, then teaching others and telling them, oh, you shouldn't joke about this, you know? I mean, it's more like, oh, this is something that I personally don't laugh about because it happens to be my history. But it, but it's amazing to me as as a foreigner, a foreigner from a German perspective, um, how Germany seems to be the only country that then sort of, or people like you who take it on the chin, whereas other countries would, people from other countries would automatically stand up and defend themselves. It's it's more, your reaction is more of, well, yeah, um, I'll just be quiet and sit here and feel slightly awkward and, uh, you know, move on from there. You, there. There's no hitting back mechanism in your mind, right? And that is a testament in many ways, I would think, of the German education since 1945. I think especially that notion of not hitting back. Uh, you know, I mean, especially among men or young young men, you then have quickly this notion of, okay, who can top the, the previous joke? Uh, you know, who can be funnier? Who can somehow, you know, relate back? Oh, yeah, but we beat you in this war. I don't know. <laughs> For me, there's never been, I've never seen the logic behind that or the fun behind that. But yeah, it's very much this of, um, yeah, um, we, we also did a few wars, you know, um, it, was terrible. The only thing that I think most Germans will joke about when it comes to World War II is that it was the Austrians uh, in World War One and World War II who started it. Um, as a, like this, this is I think as far as jokes will go, with with you know the the basically side note that Hitler is Austrian and that uh, World War II was also started somehow in Austria. But that's as far as jokes about World War II will go. I would say on a general population level. Of course, there are exceptions to any case um, and how how people do this personally. So, so what does this look like, Dario, for you growing up? Because, uh, I mean, obviously, you are a child of the 21st century. When you were born, uh, the war had finished for five, 55 years, roughly. Um, so it's, it's, it's not even your parents' generation, but it's your grandparents' generation and the ones before that who were responsible for the war. Uh, what is that German education for someone like you growing up in the 21st century when it comes to the Second World War? What does it look like? I would say, I mean, it very much starts within the families still, because I also believe that I'm the last generation who got to enjoy that. And here, I mean, enjoy in terms of a, we actually had the privilege of listening to our grandparents talk about this. And there it will usually be a perspective of, 
the war was terrible. Um, everything was bad. I've lost this amount of siblings. My my grandma lost seven seven brothers uh, due to the war. Um, so it will first be about that. I remember talking, especially talking to my grandma. Then the the part about Nazi Germany, all the atrocities committed, made her very silent and very ashamed. Um, it was very much my parents who would then bring this up and talk about this. From the grandparents, you would hear a lot about the horrors of the war. Um, did, did you from how? So did you ever run into a person of your grandparents' age who somehow didn't feel ashamed but tried to defend it or tried to try to say something, say like it wasn't that bad as people portray it? Or even that older generation has completely accepted the, the horrific nature of the Holocaust? Or are there still in your surroundings any people walking around from that age that felt that it wasn't that bad? Uh, no, not that I not that I can think of. Um, I I also think this wouldn't go wouldn't go over well. I would say from the from the elder generations, at least I've never encountered it that anyone would would say no, it wasn't that bad. It was a lot of either meeting former soldiers who actually were children, so seventeen, eighteen years old at the front, and then showing us pictures how they were at the Russian front, for an example. Um, but also taking into account that. At the time, a lot of the Germans didn't necessarily know that concentration camps existed. Um, for example, this is something that the, the Russian occupiers did in, in East Germany, is they took uh, then the, the normal population, the normal civilians, uh, once they basically moved into these territories and liberated the concentration camps, they took them to the concentration camps, making them see with their own eyes, this is what happened in your neighborhood. And you are telling me either you didn't know about this, in quotation marks, um, or you're just too ignorant to know about this. This uh, this seems that to be that eternal conversation, right? When, I, I, I didn't know what was happening. But then obviously the historical criticism of that is, well, maybe you didn't know the details about what happened in Auschwitz, but you were part of an anti-Semitic society and you could, if you only opened your eyes, you could have seen everything around you occurring, right? Without knowing every single detail. See, there is this joke that um, you know every German has somehow someone from the resistance in their family, uh, but I can tell you, I can tell you to the listeners, if every German who tells you they had so some of their you know uh, grandparents were part of the resistance, the, it wouldn't have happened. Um, it's it's a, people like to emphasize, you know, ah, okay, yeah, there was you know there was one grandpa who really didn't like what was going on. Yeah, but you have three other grandparents. What about them? Um, and then, ah, you know, we don't really talk about them. And I mean, in, in, in my family, we, we still have, I mean, because, well, my grandpa, fortunately, was too young. Um, but uh, his brother, his older brother, he served in both world wars. Um, and he even received, you know, medals from the Nazis and everything. And we, we still have those, you know, just to look at him and be like, okay, doesn't mean anything here. Um, it's not, not necessarily something to be proud of. Um, but but that's as far you know as as it will go within the families I would say. And then uh, you get to school. Um, I assume that quite a lot of history lessons are dedicated to the Second World War. Most of it. Um, so I would say until sixth grade we learned about you know what what children learn about the Romans, the Egyptians, the Greek, uh, but all these types of things. You know the fun history at least for a child. Um, if you didn't dig deeper into it when you're older. You, you probably realize that uh, it wasn't also fun. History usually isn't fun. Um, but then in, from grade six onwards is the first time you then talk about World War II. And you not only do this in history class, but in almost throughout all of the curriculum except math. Um, so it's part of, you know, it was part of art where we looked at, of art classes, where we looked at uh, Nazi propaganda, um, very much analyzing, okay, how was art used? How were the films used? Uh, something that 
still isn't talked about enough is the power of movies, you know, of the first few movies that Goebbels in particular used um, to influence the population. So that is being talked about in art class. And then religion, um, we have still have classes on religion. I don't know if that's the same for the rest of the world. Um, we talk about the role of the church. Um, was the church benefiting from this? Was the church doing something against this? Was, was the, what was the, the stance of the church on it? Then moving on to, to German, where it is about like German classes, where you know you, you we force young people to read books for some reason. Um, and we were, uh, I mean, part of our seventh grade reading or eighth grade reading was The Boy in the Striped Pyjama. Um, and so, so you kind of build up and all throughout then, throughout all of these uh, these years, you, you still, of course, have history classes. And there it starts, like first you talk a little bit about the horrors of World War II and then it, but it starts with the Weimar Republic. Okay, what went wrong here? Um, in what type of situation was Germany that, you know, this type of ideology like would find a breeding ground? So then you talk about, okay, Germany was completely destroyed after World War One. Well, no, Germany in itself wasn't, but... You know the the Treaty of Versailles. It was basically humiliated, humiliated a lot of a uh, lot of reparations. Um, so Germany was in this terrible, humiliated position. And okay, so how from there could then someone like Hitler rise to power? Then we talk about 1933 a lot about what type of laws were enacted, about what type of mechanisms happened. Um, and then it very much goes into you know the six years from 1939 until 1945, um, and obviously about uh, yeah about. Than, than the Holocaust in particular, uh, you know, the the important conferences leading up to it, kind of teaching why the Holocaust is different to other crimes against humanity with regards to, I mean, it's always difficult to compare genocides, um, you know, because each genocide is an individual situation for itself. But when it comes to the Holocaust, the famous German bureaucracy and to the extent it was used, you know, writing down exactly on a piece of paper how many Jews are in Spain, how many are in France, how many are in Germany. What are we going to do with them? Okay, we're sending them to X camp with X capacity. We'll first let them work until they're basically dead. And once they're really only a corpse left, we'll kill them. You know, that type of uh, thinking, how all of this was created. And this goes on for from grade 7 until grade 12 or 13. Uh, so for at least five, six years. And how, how did you experience that? It's difficult to compare because you don't know what it's like to be British or French. But does it change your perspective on your country in 2010 or 2012, however old you were at that time, uh, do you look at Germany in the 21st century differently when you hear those things about something that happened 70 or 80 years ago? I don't think I look at Germany in a different way, but I know that the world looks at us in a different way. Um, so there's always, you know, the, the first thing when you ask people, oh, what do you think about when you hear Germany? I mean, it's either German cars, um, maybe German football, now that we're currently experiencing the World Cup, or it will be Nazi Germany. Um, I mean, especially part of my exchange experience in the United States. You know, I was actually asked by someone, so what do you think about Hitler and his current policies? And I'm thinking, one second, current? You know, he's, he's been dead for like 60 years. Um, I'm not so sure whether he's still alive. Like, we, we've moved on. And so you you grow up with a perception that you are an ambassador to your own country, obviously, and that you need to represent that country in a way that all oh, Germany has learned from this. This is one of the things why waving the German national flag isn't necessarily a thing, you know, especially in the United States where you have flags everywhere. If someone, if someone is waving a flag or has a flag on their balcony, um, when it's not a football time, football is different, people. Uh, Germany, Germany and football has a special relationship. So when you hang up a flag during the World Cup, you are you like the national team. 
if that flag is still up after the World Cup has finished, oh, then people will assume that you have tendencies towards the right or that you are still glorifying this because, don't get me wrong, there's still about 5% within Germany that will sympathize with, with that type of thinking, uh, with either the national, the NPDs or the National Party of Germany um, or the alternative for Germany, but they are only certain elements. Um, make sure to not throw them all into, into, one, <laughs> into one big bucket. Uh, but when it comes to looking at our own country, it's it's really just, okay, hey, this is our mission, that something like this is not going to happen again, which is also why the country of Germany has a special relationship with the state of Israel, um, which is, and this is, I, th I think, this is something I've mentioned in the past, which is why I personally tend to be a bit more hesitant criticizing Israel over actions that they do, as opposed to other countries. Right. And that is something that is widely... Uh, supported by media, media politicians. It's it, I, I would assume that it's quite hard for a commentator in a German newspaper or a politician to voice any criticism against Israel, right? Well, it is, I mean, obviously people do it. Um, Israel is criticized, but very quickly, um, if you criticize the, the state of Israel um, and not necessarily the government of Israel, then you are, I don't want to say you're being put into an anti-Semitic corner, but we're quicker to react to this. Uh, so the Zentralrat der Juden, so the Central Council of Jews in Germany, a very powerful lobby. And when they voice concern about a statement being said, that's something that is then quickly listened to. I mean, there are, of course, uh, I'm pretty sure you can divide the country half and half of this potentially. But uh, the example that I like to give, uh, there was this Amnesty International report a few months ago that, um, that uh, called Israel an apartheid state. Um, and then used even some anti-Semitic language, you know, that could in, could be interpreted in that way. And so that report had a vastly different reaction within Germany than in other countries, because for us it was about amnesty, careful here with what type of language you use, please. Um, and at the same time, it was, uh, I mean, in the rest of the world was perceived of, ooh, what is Israel doing in Palestine? And I mean, another example of this, I think we talked about this in a previous episode as well, is when uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke to the German parliament and uh, then use this this motto we almost have of never again, of like something this can never happen again, when he used that with regards to Ukraine. Um, that I mean, and, and but this is then the German reaction, you know, when he did the same in the Israeli parliament in the Knesset, there were very angry reactions. The German reaction was, you can't say that. It wasn't an angry reaction, but it was a very quick saying, no, no, no please don't. Let's let's let like you you cannot compare. You, you cannot compare Ukraine to Israel. You cannot you compare what's happening in Ukraine to the Holocaust. Please don't do that. So, so in, But in many ways, that's interesting, right? The difference between the Israeli reaction and German reaction, because in some ways, historically, you know, they, they, they are connected. But the German reaction is very much one of um, low-key reaction. Like, hey, this isn't right. But we can't be angry, because if we're angry, that is somehow a reflection of a dark past that we are trying to avoid here, right? That kind of ah, thing. Exactly. I mean, keep in mind, German sounds like an angry language. So if there's a German speaking angrily, that's an angry German. And we are careful about that. Um, and, 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 and that gets reflected in those horrible BBC shows that sort of then associate straight away a German speaking with the Nazi speaking and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that this type of thinking, I mean, was also well reflected uh, because the first time I realized how Germany is perceived differently in the world than others and how this is also then differently perceived in Germany. So that reaction was with the 2012 Eurozone crisis, um, you know, when Germany, you know, the 
moneymaker of Europe was walking around Europe, uh, the, the EU, telling everyone, you need to save money here, you need to be more frugal there. Um, and there, there were these posters held up uh, where Merkel was depicted with, uh, you know, the, the Nazi symbols and the Hitler mustache. Um, that, that, you know, that I, will, I almost want to call a chip on the shoulder will always be there. Uh, because as soon as we saw that, we were like, oh, no. Oh, people are really angry at us and they're putting us in the same corner as the Nazis. This is really not what we intended with this uh, austerity policy. Um, and so that type of thinking is, you know, that's something that will immediately scare the German public being being compared uh, to Nazis. It, it is. I very much remember that. And it is one of the things that horrifies me um, about the way we deal with Germany, the outsider outside world deals with Germany, that it is good forever now and 100 years from now and 300 years from now if the planet is still alive to remember the singular evil nature of the holocaust and what happened in the second world war but it would be so much more productive to recognize the incredible work that germany has done afterwards in dealing with itself and to continuously then in 2012 and at other moments going back to the second world war and skipping over the past 70 years is not only doing a disservice and injustice towards the German modern German people, but it also um, means that we don't learn from your case study, right? Because you're a brilliant case study in absolute horrific evil turned into very deep understanding and awareness. See, but at the same time, I'm almost not willing to accept that compliment, uh, you know, because... It is, uh, as I pointed out uh, about 20 minutes ago, it is very important for me that, hey, this is only World War II. So we are talking about more or less 12 years here, you know, the, the, the time of Nazi Germany plus the World War. So that's something that we will talk a lot about in history, which at the same time means that certain other parts of our history are not talked about as much. And here I'm talking about the German colonial uh, period. I mean, I'm pretty sure that most Germans cannot even tell you that we had colonies. Um despite or even which colonies those were and which atrocities were committed and which genocides were committed. So that type of, you know, the basically the case study or the methodology that we use when, with regards to World War II is then not used, applied, I want to say yet, um, to, to uh, the colonization periods or other atrocities committed uh, by German people. You know, there was the Holy Roman Empire at some point. <laughs> wasn't all great. German history is is generally not really well understood in part because Germany only exists in 1871, right? So the I think that foreigners don't have an awful lot of knowledge on um, the nature of German history and culture before Bismarck, basically. Exactly. Um, I mean, I remember once in class I was asked, um, "So do you celebrate your national uh, your national holiday?" I was like, "Which one?" <laughs> Um, there's, there's not necessarily one that, that we can think about except, and this is something, um, this is, this is what I would say November 9th reflects Germany as a whole because on November 9th, we theoretically, we celebrate, uh, the fall of the Berlin wall, an immensely important event in the last 30 years in Germany. However, November 9th was also the day, uh, when the Nazis for the first time started the Reichsprogrammnacht. That was the first time when synagogues uh, were burned down and Nazis and, and Jews were killed by, by Nazis. Um, and then there's, there's a few additional dates, um, uh, like events that happened on November 9th. So that day, I would say, summarizes German history uh, rather well and then reflects this, you know, this, I think, very healthy struggle we have of, oh, we're celebrating 
the day we were theoretically united. But please, let's not forget that on that day, um, one of the worst crimes of humanity ever started. What, what is interesting here, by the way, is that the basis for the Holocaust and the basis for the Second World War is a very long history of anti-Semitism throughout Europe, right? Not just in Germany, uh, but in the whole of Western Europe, essentially for thousands of years. Um, you can explore the path of the Jewish people throughout all those centuries, but the idea that the Holocaust started in the 1930s is doing it is is doing a disservice to the importance of all those centuries before with Europeans laying the foundation, the the breeding ground for anti-Semitism, right? And then this is also reflected in how we still deal with anti-Semitic history uh, in Germany. So there was this uh, case, because it was just uh, decided a few months ago, uh, this summer, where the German Constitutional Court ruled on a relief, um, so, you know, a, a stone, well, a, a basically an image hit into stone and attached to a church. Um, not not any church. It was the Wittenberg Church, uh, where Martin Luther um, used to used to do his shenanigans. Whom, by the way, is also considered anti-Semitic in Germany um, because he was uh, very much. But I mean, wouldn't that be fair to say about almost take any European before the 1900s and they're anti-Semitic? Surely, I mean, there was it was such a deeply, a profoundly dark undercurrent in in Christian society. It was, um, but uh, again, I just felt the need to point it out. Um, and <laughs> because you're German and you need to, you, you're not allowed to say anything positive about Germans ever without actually pointing those things out. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so you have you have this relief on this church and it depicts a, a pig and then two Jews and they are clearly visible. Like you can clearly tell that they are Jews and they're basically drinking uh, for like the, the milk of that pig. And then you have a rabbi who's basically lifting up the tail's pig and looking, uh, you know, where what's behind that tail's pig. And this is a clearly Semitic, anti-Semitic uh, depiction because it's even labeled Judensau, meaning Jewish pig. Um, so there was this uh, there was this court case this year um, that, talked, that basically decided whether the church had to take it down. Um, and important here to mention is that even before that court case uh, was decided, the church already by themselves put up a basically description, you know, uh, saying that this is an anti-Semitic depiction. We definitely have no longer anything in common with that, especially that no longer party is important because the the court then ruled that this, does, that this does not have to be taken down because of the responsibility of Germany towards its own history. You know, it's um, there's this great terminology surrounding it, which I think the English language lacks. Is the court then said they turn it from a Schandmal into a Mahnmal, and so a Schandmal is basically a mark of shame, and they turn it into a memorial of caution and warning. Because I think the the word memorial in itself doesn't serve uh, this justice, because a memorial itself just means, you know, in in memory of history, but like Mahnmal means it's. A memorial about you know history. Be cautious. Do not repeat these mistakes. And also, it's supposed to stay up there because it highlights the role of the church in anti-Semitism over the past hundreds of years. So, I, and that to me was very interesting to see, especially compared to the Anglo-Saxon world, um, where you know you have, you have these discussions about statues being torn down, 
I'm not going to get into the details because I don't know about these details, but um, for us it is very important, and the court highlighted this, that there is no whitewashing of history, you know, that they're just not, I mean, I, if, you, if you give the churches the chance to eradicate all sources or all evidence of anti-Semitic behavior in the past, then people at some point might forget that the church played a very active role in this. This is exactly why I wish that in other countries, certainly other Western European countries, there, every child as part of the history curriculum has six months of understanding the German approach to its history because this is so fundamental. The, in Britain, there was over the past um, year or two years, there, there has been a lot of talk about um, figures, business figures from the 17th, 18th century that were associated with slave trade, for example. And, and, and straight away, uh, basically, the if you like, the, the liberal crowd went for those have to be taken down. We cannot celebrate this. Here in Spain, um, this is a, a very common theme, of course. Uh, Spanish history is complex because of the Civil War and then the era of Franco. And after Franco, it's almost Spain did the opposite of what Germany did for understandable reasons, because in, you know, in the late 70s, there was this real fear for a return to dictatorship. And the agreement was, we're going to let the past be the past. We're not going to discuss it in exchange for now setting up a vibrant democracy, which in the end turned out to be a very productive and successful project. But the result of that was that there is this dark underbelly in Spain that has never really been properly explored, unlike Germany where Germany also has this dark past, but it has been explored in every detail. Um, by the way, I should point out here, just on a side note, before we get an angry email from anyone, I no one obviously can mistake the Holocaust for other historical events, right? So if we talk about colonialism or if we talk about slave trade, there was something singularly evil in the Holocaust because of the organized nature that you discussed before, because of the very structural, systemic way in which people were murdered, genocide was committed, um, which is not something that we want to compare to other um, items from the past. But the similarity here, or the, the parallel here, is that Spain has this history that it hasn't dealt with, and now in the 21st century, you have a continuous back and forth. A left-wing government comes into power in Madrid and they change all the street names to get rid of Franco sympathizers, to get rid of fascists from the 1930s. Then the right comes back and they restore uh, these street names, which is has nothing to do, that game has nothing to do with understanding the past like Germany has. It has everything to do with politics, with being entrenched into the left and right narrative, right? Which is something that Germany has exactly avoided. Yeah, I mean, we did have help from the Americans because I think this is a factor that you cannot underestimate. Um, I mean, in Spain, you're obviously, you know, coming fresh out of the Franco dictatorship, basically, you know, still having the wounds of the civil war not overcome. Um, who knows what a public and open, you know, conversation about Spanish history could have could have led to in that time. So that's the reason why, again, every country is, is their own case. And having a an outside power, you know, an occupier come in and uh, 
basically telling you, hey, you, you do need to overcome this. Uh, you do you like you, you need to understand that this entire Nazi thing wasn't good. Um, I mean that that obviously helped. I, I I would say it kickstarted it when it comes to them the process and how exactly that was done, especially I mean now seventy years after. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that this is you know that this grew out of I mean, you know just just out of German civil society, which I I mean I can reflect of almost any part of of my life where you know in school we you know you have these week long class trips that in theory are supposed to be fun. Well, they are, but keep in mind that they are educational. Um, so we, um, during our class trip to France, we went to a concentration camp in France. Um, you know, that type of stuff. It, it, it's hilarious to me that straight away your reaction is we've had help because you don't want to give Germany too much credit. So the Americans helped us, right? But, uh, and without me wanting to get into um, a country that I know very little about, but the Japanese also had help in that sense, as in they were controlled by the United States after the Second World War. Constitution was written, basically enforced by the United States. Uh, Japan hasn't had that same historical awareness path that Germany has gone through. So I, I think in that sense, Germany, once again, deserves a lot of credit because it's not the natural way of doing things. Um, for countries in the world and Germany is one of the few cases that has embraced that and and the rest of the world has a lot to learn from that so we promised the listeners earlier that we would also talk about other perspectives uh, given that you're Dutch um, let's talk about the Dutch perspective uh, so how is the how's the Dutch Empire uh, taught in, in in Dutch schools well so I really had to think about the Netherlands as well when you mentioned this case of um, statues being taken down or not right now there is absolutely a debate a conversation in media in politics about colonial times even last week uh, the dutch monarchy the dutch king has announced a uh, investigation an independent investigation into the colonial ties of the royal family and to see how the royal family benefited from maybe dark aspects of colonial times so it exists but it very much is about, oh, we, we should not celebrate this person because, from the 18th century because he was a slave trader. So it's basically people putting themselves in the shoe of judging their past rather than understanding. Um, that's why I love the example of keeping up a memorial, not to celebrate anti-Semitism, but to remind ourselves of anti-Semitism or to remind ourselves of the colonial darkness of the Netherlands, right? Um, the the, the, the the conversation is very much about who was wrong in the past. And in the Netherlands, there is very little awareness or conversation, um, certainly not among the broader population, about what the Netherlands actually did, why they did it. Um, if you like the Dutch bubble, and I'm simplifying a little bit here, but this has long centuries of historical roots, even relating back to the War of Independence uh, against Spain, the 80 Years' War in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries, is that the Dutch are just peaceful traders. The Dutch are a trading nation. And there's a lot of truth to that, by the way. I mean, they, they, the Dutch have been historically very good at setting up multinationals, at, 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 at becoming rich by trading with the rest of the world. But that also led to a mythology around colonialism. So the, the Dutch don't really look at colonialism as something necessarily dark because their simplified image is sim that they put a trading post somewhere in Indonesia and a trading post in Sri Lanka, then called Ceylon. 
uh, a trading post in South Africa. And they did that for a brilliant multinational um, enterprise that had no ambitions to be imperial or colonial in the way that the French or the British did it. That's the mythology. Whereas in reality, of course, the Dutch absolutely committed horrific atrocities um, throughout its colonial past. I mean, already the idea of a small country like the Netherlands controlling an enormous area of modern-day Indonesia and believing that was somehow morally justified is, of course, insane if you think about it but that kind of conversation how did that happen what did the dutch actually do in detail in um, indonesia in the, the dutch indies is something that is not properly discussed the most that you will get is oh that name that statue needs to be taken down or that company maybe needs to pay some money to indonesians or something like that right rather than any any detailed understanding of who we are and that's why again we really need to look at germany for the path forward and what's the impact of this on the dutch foreign policy is this reflected I mean, because again for me for the germany case i said oh, i would say that the german reactions that usually to first stand back a little bit you know watch foreign policy from the side and then weigh in be like careful careful here no not let's not commit any atrocities what's the, the dutch reaction well, the, the, fund, the, the foundation of the Dutch thinking that they are simply a peaceful trading nation. Um, they were relatively early with democratization, um, for European standards, I mean. Um, uh, together with Sweden and, and the UK, they were, they were relatively quick in abandoning autocratic rule. And so that basis of the Dutch looking at their history, looking at who, where they come from and telling themselves... We are just the good guys in history, leads to the Netherlands not being at all critical of its current 21st century foreign policy. So to give you just a parallel, and it's a bit of a cheap parallel because, you know, you have to simplify these things. But um, in the after the Second World War, the Netherlands still controlled to some extent um, their Indonesian colonies their Asian colonies. And it was completely clear the Netherlands was done, empty. It had been destroyed by the Second World War. It had no economic or military power to speak of anymore. It needed to rebuild its own country first. And so it was completely obvious in 1947, 1948, that the Dutch had to abandon their colonies. Uh, not just from a moral perspective, that had been obvious since forever, but also from a practical perspective. And yet the Dutch desperately try to cling on out of this if you, if you read literature about it it's this 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 sense of no but we're also needed they need us we are the civilized people we still need to educate them that was what they told themselves right the dutch and in order to keep control over a place that they should never have controlled in the first place and they were never going to control in the future they sent the military and they committed some horrible, horrible acts. For example, the uh, Ravajit massacre. I don't really know how to uh, pronounce it in English. But uh, this happened in 1947. And Dutch military killed over 400 civilians in Indonesia. Most Dutch people never, nowadays in the 21st century, don't know about that, never heard of that. If you now fast forward to... 
the 21st century and you see the Netherlands once again being very active on the international stage with military uh, policy making with in with military action supporting the United States in Iraq in Libya in Indonesia um, uh, sorry um, not Indonesia in uh, Syria in Afghanistan you there are definitely some parallels there about a lack of awareness because for example in uh, 2015 the Dutch accidentally killed 70 civilians in um, in Havija, it's a place in Iraq, and hundreds of people got injured. Now, this wasn't on purpose, uh, but the Dutch are responsible. Dutch F-16 fighters killed 70 innocent civilians. And yes, at the time, there was some talk about it. There were questions in parliaments. The media wrote about it, but people move on. Ask a schoolchild now in 2022, do you know anything about Haviji? Uh, sorry, Havija? The answer will most likely be no, no idea. So just like what happened during colonial times and our lack of understanding, our knowledge about our behavior then, we still actually develop very little knowledge about what we're doing now. That is not the same as saying that the Netherlands is an evil country, but it's certainly ignorant about its own behavior on the world stage. And as a result, it keeps on making horrific mistakes. Let's move on to the you know more, most extreme case in my opinion from my perspective uh, because I would say the the opposite of how Germany deals with its past is the United Kingdom um, because you know I mean as a German I, I've mentioned this a couple of times but you know two world wars and one World Cup that type of celebrating your own history um, over others I don't know always makes me question you know how much sense does it make and how how healthy is that. And I think that this is reflected in the numbers that I read out in the fact sheet, you know, that a third of the Britons uh, believe that the empire had had done more good than harm to their colonies. Something that I'm pretty sure the the colonies they have something would to say about, right? <laughs> they, I'm pretty sure they have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah, um, and that is astounding in many ways, and it is very much again that bubble thinking, right? That the Britain, an, an island nation, finds it very difficult to acknowledge the darkness of its past simply because then they would have to reflect on who they are right now. And, and, and um, they, their, their empire is not that long ago. When the empire collapsed, it didn't collapse because of a specific singular evil event. It just collapsed because of the Second World War and the world was changing in, 21st century, in the 20th century. And other powers took over. So there was never like a, catharth a catharsis like Germany had of waking up one day in 1945, 1946, looking around and saying, what have we done? Britain's never had that moment of catharsis. It was a slow crumbling of the empire. And therefore, there was never this self-reflection. And the way Britain looks at it now in 2022 is still incredibly closely linked to that imperial past, even with things such as the Commonwealth, even with the way that somehow through the United States, they still project power onto the world beyond what on paper they should be capable of. Uh, that is something that is incredibly detrimental to the way that the UK behaves on the world stage. I mean, the first time I started thinking about British history beyond, like, to what extent it could be damaging was, uh, you know, it, that it came up during the Brexit votum. 
uh, when you know all of Europe was somehow surprised that the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. And well, see, already me saying somehow now is a bit of a is a bit of a recency bias because you know at that time we still thought oh the European Union is a is a good project and why would the United Kingdom vote to do this? And then one of the explanations was you know they're seeking back their times when they could dictate the terms of their own foreign policy and that they would like to return to those you know empire days when they were a force for good in the world. They've and they've always seen themselves as independent from continental Europe, right? They've always, they've they've been actively participating in wars in Europe. By the way, if you take a map of where Britain, the United Kingdom, Great Britain um, and the United Kingdom have been involved in wars, it is basically the whole world. You know, you can put a dot basically in every country in the world and Britain at some point has been militarily active there, which already, if you're British, should make you scratch your head a little bit thinking, what's going on here? Are we... The, are we actually the bad guys? Um, because that is not the kind of behavior that a neutral observer would approve of. Um, they've always seen themselves as independent from Europe, despite being very actively involved with Europe. And a very important aspect that we mentioned in previous episodes when it came to the United States as well, is that Britain, despite the bombings of the Second World War and certain other moments, has never experienced the military destruction of their behavior, unlike continental Europe, unlike Spain, France, uh, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, who have experienced the absolute horrors of war. Yes, there were, were bombings in the early years of the Second World War, but that's about it. There was never an invading force that actually managed to take over modern day Britain. And as a result, once again, Britain looks at itself as we are kind of superior to those continentals. We 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 don't need Europe. We don't. We can go. We can leave. We can leave the the rest of them behind because we still have the Commonwealth. We can go back to our glory days, our imperial days, when when we were the most important, powerful nation on earth. Because that's exactly what Britain was for about eighty years or so. I think this is going to be interesting to observe, um, especially how much of the emotional attachment remains after more time has passed. Uh, because one of the cases where the least time has passed is definitely the United States. Um, with the examples of uh, Vietnam, uh, Vietnam with the Mai Lai massacre, for an example, or the war on terror in Iraq with the Abu Ghraib uh, torture, torture camps. Exactly. So the United States doesn't have the same colonial past as Europeans, even though they did some weird things, that's, uh, you know, uh, with the Philippines and all that. But um, the United States absolutely has a past that it's ignorant of, and it's a much more recent past. So mo every American, I would think, or most Americans, if you ask about Vietnam, they will say, yeah, that wasn't great. Um, that was, uh, we shouldn't have been there. But the actual details of how the United States got involved, why they got involved, and what they actually did there, such as the Mai Lai massacre, where hundreds of civilians were murdered by American soldiers, who afterwards got actually very light punishment for that, if at all. Um, a few got punished, but then were pardoned later. A few of the perpetrators for the Mai Lai massacre. Um and the fact that the United States was there under the guise of we are bringing freedom and democracy to Vietnam against the communist threat emanating from the Soviet Union. 
that understanding, that analysis, that is not something that your average school child would be aware of. Yeah, they know about Vietnam. They know that it probably wasn't great, but they don't know the actual crimes that were committed by the United States there, in, not in detail. Because in the end, once again, the idea is that overall the United States is a good country, is making the world a better place, and sometimes they make some unfortunate mistakes, which is hugely underestimating just like with the British Empire, just like with the Dutch Empire, the structural, systemic nature of what these countries do. And as a result, the United States is not particularly critical when it comes to the war on terror, when it comes to fighting ISIS, when it comes to fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. They don't ask themselves, hang on, what are the lessons from our relatively recent past that we can learn here? Because there are, I mean, well, I would say you can, you can claim that you know, their recent history has had some impact on US foreign policy. Well, to be honest, Vietnam less so, because afterwards the United States got very quickly involved in Afghanistan. But do you think it has changed at least a little bit within policymakers, maybe not within the population? Well, what, the, what you see with the United States is that the United States is becoming more reluctant to get involved globally because it is failing, its, its global strategy is failing. I don't think it comes out of a issue of self-reflection. Even when it comes to much darker is issues such as slavery from the 19th century or the way that the United States was born out of the almost, almost extinction of First Nation uh, people, of Native Americans when the Europeans landed, those conversations are still very sensitive and are not particularly well explored in detail about what are the structural systemic items that are at work here, let alone something like a Vietnam or Iraq adventure where the, the sense is that some unfortunate things happened, but overall it was the right thing for the United States to fight for democracy and freedom. And so that's, that simplistic messaging, that lack of understanding, leads to the United States never looking in the mirror and saying, what actually are we doing? Keep, keep in mind that there are very few cases in history of the things that we now reject as morally reprehensible, slavery, colonialism, um, massacres, where the actual people perpetrating those historical crimes thought of themselves as the bad guys. There's always a justification. And the justification for the Dutch sticking to um, their colonies in Asia was, well, without us, it will be chaos and they will murder each other. We're here to protect them from themselves. We're here to make sure that they will stay democratic, even though they were a colony. Uh, that was the way the Dutch told themselves that it was the right thing to do to be active. The way that the British uh, kept ruling over... India and other colonies was by saying, without us, they will be worse off. Well, that's exactly what the West is doing now in other countries. They're saying, you need us to get rid of your authoritarian regimes. We, you need us to bring prosperity and democracy towards your own populations. That can only happen if you don't critically understand your past. I would say with this, we have thoroughly analyzed the bubble. And with this, we can move on to the next category. And can you explain to our listeners what is the problem? So what's the what's the damage here? I mean, what's the damage from not learning from our past mistakes, from not having sufficient awareness of who we are? 
I mean, you've we already kind of hinted at it, but what does this mean for foreign policy? That leads us, us, Western Europeans going into Middle Eastern country, not sufficiently equipped to understand how they look at us. They look at us as people who uh, first messed with them during the Crusades, then messed with them during colonial times. And now they see we come in and we're messing with them again. And then we say, yeah, no, no, no. But of course, the Crusades were bad. Um, we don't really understand what happened with the Crusades, but but we understand that it wasn't great. Uh, also, of course, colonial times weren't great either. We understand that some things went wrong. Our apologies are bad. Let's move on. But now we're, we're not the bad guys. We're the good guys. We bring freedom and democracy. And so the result is that our understanding of that relationship with for example, policymakers in the Middle East or policymakers in Latin America or policymakers in Southeast Asia is a clash of realities. The reality for local populations is very different than the reality for the Westerners coming in now because they remember the past very different than we do. And as a result, Western Europe, the United States are nowhere near as good as they could be in implementing productive foreign policy. So to recap what's the damage here and what's the problem here is, and so we have modern history aspects um, that we are not trained to think of. And when I say modern, I mean relatively modern. Um, and especially the behavior of the like, you know, past 100, 125 years. And this leads to you know, a repetition of mistakes. So that's that's the damage here. Exactly. Um, We, we do the same thing over and over again. And every time we feel that now it's different because now we're the good guys. In the past, maybe it was great, but now we're really the good guys, which is, of course, exactly how history repeats itself over and over again. So moving on to the next category. And what now? What now, Balder? What do we do? What do we do with this problem that we've just identified? Well, I think for once we actually have one very practical solution that I already mentioned before. Every Western European and North American country needs to put into their school curriculum the German World War II case study, not the German case with respect to maybe its colonies from before um, the Second World War. But let's look at how Germany dealt with this and apply that. Do not simply take down statues and think that it's a right. Don't transfer money for something, for a crime that was committed 200 years ago, but deeply become aware of who you are, where you're coming from. What did you do in colonial times? Why were you, was your country there? Was your country on the other side of the world, controlling other people, uh, at times murdering other people? What are the dynamics there? How um, did you justify that at the time to yourself as a country? Um, and then apply that to your current situation in the 21st century. So do you notice the same pattern again? Does that mean that maybe you have to be a little bit careful in starting a military campaign in the Middle East once again? Do you really understand how people in the Middle East look at you because of that? Uh, do you really understand the long-term impact? Are you really so sure that you're the good guy here? Those kinds of questions can only come from a very long-term structural understanding and the Germans have shown us the way. With regards to World War II, um, if any German policymaker or lawmaker is listening to this, um, I'm pretty sure German students would love to hear about German colonial past, at least for, you know, a semester or so. Um, 
because wasn't wasn't thoroughly taught uh, in high school, and they just acknowledged the genocide of twenty uh, of, of in Namibia in twenty fifteen. But and yeah, this with with the German once again sort of self deprecatingly uh, not wanting to take the <laughs> not taking not taking the compliment that they'd just been given. Um, I think this is a great way to end the conversation of today on historical awareness and accountability. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western Bubble. That is it from my side. Holder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I'm afraid it's a bit of a cliche, but it's such a beautiful quote, even though everyone has heard it, um, I'm sure already. It's by Eugene O'Neill, the American playwright and Nobel laureate in literature, who said, There's no present or future, only the past happening over and over again now. Mm -hmm.